Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good morning and welcome to the Dean's Distinguished Speaker Series. My name is Shazad Khan and as the outgoing president of the Management Consulting Association here at Anderson, I have the honor and privilege of introducing today's speaker, Mr. Jim Moffitt, Chairman and CEO of Deloitte Consulting. During his 24 years with Deloitte, Jim has become known for serving clients with distinction and championing collaboration to advance the firm's vision of one Deloitte and its culture and values. Jim leads by example through his ongoing involvement in the marketplace, serving as an advisory partner at several key clients in addition to his role as CEO. Since graduating from Anderson, Jim has been a passionate and committed alumnus. He has served in such roles as a Deloitte campus recruiting champion for Anderson and a judge for several case competitions here. He has led pro bono projects for the Parker Career Management Center and was personally responsible for making Anderson one of Deloitte's select number of national recruiting schools. As one of Anderson's 100 inspirational alumni, we're excited and honored to have him back on campus with us. So please join us, join me, excuse me, in welcoming Mr. Jim Moffat. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, Scott. It's, it's uh, great to be here today. I was actually in New York yesterday, and I'm going to be uh, heading to Maine tonight. Um, but, uh, you know, every day at UCLA is a good day, so I'm willing to come back and spend some time here. Uh, the, uh, the facilities are a little different than when I was here. We were up on the hill. And our, uh, the food wasn't so good, it was simply potlatch, which I think was, uh, most of the times, uh, the health inspectors were around there, but, but other than that, uh, the same place. Um, great to be here. I actually have uh, my daughter and some of her friends are here. So actually, while I do a lot of public speaking, I have to admit that the pressure is on today, because <laughs> I can't embarrass Kaylee and her friends. Um, you know, I get a chance to go around the country a lot, spend a lot of time with clients and with our people and talk about a variety of topics. But one of the things that always comes up is leadership. And so that's what I want to spend today talking a little bit about. And I have committed to a hard stop at noon, so I'll make sure I, I hit that. So when I think about leadership, and there's obviously lots of different books you know, on this. In fact, I think a lot about leadership is experiential, uh, lessons learned over time, but certainly reading what you see in the various books. But what I, I kind of like to simple, think about it in two, two simple ways, a couple of different dimensions. There's the focus areas, kind of the what that you do as it relates to leadership. And then there are leadership principles, which is really how you want to lead and operate the company. And I think they're both actually quite important, particularly in times of chaos. Now, I love this quote. Because anybody who says they like operating in times of chaos is either lying or they've been drinking. Okay? In a downturn, it's hard, right? The decisions you have to make are hard. They're difficult. Uh, everybody performs well in an up market. The real question, the real challenge is how do you operate in times of chaos? And I think in those times, it's important to bring both perspectives. So when I think about kind of the what or the focus areas, in, in currently in my role, I spend most of my time focused on growth and innovation, brand and positioning, talent, or building leaders, and then operational excellence. And I build all my agenda, my, my, my calendar, my executive committee, the focus built around those topics. And the emphasis will change over time. So back in 2008, 2009, we had much more of a focus around operations, as you might expect. Today, I'm focused a lot on growth and innovation, branded positioning, and people. So I spend a lot of my time on strategy, talking to our clients, and spending time with our people. Now, the other side, the leadership disciplines, is just as important, particularly in a time like this. As a leader, you're signaling to, the, to your team how you want to operate the company, the kind of leadership principles that are going to be behind the decisions, the direction, how you interact with your team, with your, with your players, and I think that consistency, that steady hand on the tiller, so people understand kind of the basis around which you make decisions is a big part of, I think, what, what helps drive the performance of an organization. Now, what I tell our team is we're gonna, we're gonna outperform the market in any market, but the reality is in a downturn, as tough as they are, we'll gain more market share relative to our competition in those markets, and I think a lot of it's because of that combination. So when I 
when I start thinking about the leadership principles, which is where I'm going to focus today, I always start with values. Okay? The corporate values or the partnership values that we have as an organization. I think success starts and ends with values. Now, our strategies are going to change over time. In fact, I just one of the things I just did when I took over this role as CEO about a year ago is refreshed our strategy. I really wanted to look out five to ten years and, and look at where the, the market was going and our organization was going. But I always did that and brought that back to our core set of values. Values, to me, define what you stand for as an organization. Now, Judy knows I'm a big John Wooden fan, and I think this quote really gets at it. When you think about the character, the character of an organization, the culture of an organization, the values, what you believe in, sends a signal to your, sends a signal to your people and also the people you work with, your clients, etc., about the organization and what you stand for that's bigger than your strategy. So strategies will change over time, but the values, I think, are timeless. In fact, one of the first one of the first senior partners I talked to when I joined the firm, one of the conversations we took it, you know, when they're still whining and dining you, right? Took me out to dinner and we talked and and he ended up the conversation talking about values. He goes, you know, and by the way, the values haven't changed much since then. That's twenty five years ago I joined the firm. He said the values are gonna get imprinted on the inside of your eyelids. So even when you're asleep, you're thinking about the values. Okay, so so think about that. The next has to do with creating balance. And this is a picture everybody said I was going to embarrass Kaylee with. So, Kaylee, I apologize. I could have brought a baby picture. Right? But I talk about balance. There's a couple elements to it. First is you have to think everybody has a different balance point. Some people balance is working 180 hours a week. Now, some people is, is, is very different. But the point is you have to really think about defining your balance and building your schedule around that and putting the, you know, the, the, the key points of what's important to you there first. Now, part of the reason I put the picture of my family is that, fa- I, look, I love what I do. I love the firm I work with. I love the people I work with. It's part of the reason I do some of the crazy things I do. But at the end of the day, for me, family number one. Okay, if there's something that I have to... Part of the reason, part of the reason I, I, I went to Dallas on Sunday because my son had a soccer tournament, right? I got home Friday from New York late, and I left Saturday to go to Dallas so I could be with him at a soccer tournament. Part of the reason I did that was so I could be with him at that point. So you have to do some, some strange things to get this done. For me, what I did with my family is I spent a lot of time, Kayla will tell you this, coaching my kids. I, I probably coached 25 teams over about 10 or 15 years. In fact, I retired as a coach last year because my youngest, Cade, guy over here who's now actually taller than his mom, is 13, and he's got more professional coaches than me. But the reality is it did a couple things for me. One, I got a chance to spend time with my family. It also was a way for me to give back to the community because I was actually pretty good at it. And then I could protect kids from some of the you know, crazy parents who were out there. <laughs> and there are lots of them, trust me. The other part is, I tell you, you, you do a t-ball practice with a bunch of five-year-olds running around with baseball bats, you better get focused on that and not work, right? Otherwise, you're going to have some, some real injuries going around. So it, it gives you a chance to really refresh what you're doing, recharge. Now, I took this role on last year about this time. And in the summer, and I was talking about the importance of balance. Because, by the way, if, if senior people in an organization don't talk about it, then the younger people in an organization are afraid to do it. So I consciously went around the country and said, look, I'm going to go on vacation. We're thinking about a couple of things. And I talked about a cruise to Alaska and going to Scotland. Got a lot of input. And everybody said we should go to Scotland. So we went to Scotland. So I, I was very public about doing it. But it was a really, really busy time when I left. And so I tell you, know, I'm going to disconnect, unplug. It's important to do. And I have to tell you, when I got out on the road, we landed in Edinburgh. I pulled up my computer and I started to dig into the email. I actually brought this copy of an email with me that I got from one of my senior partners. This guy's about 58. He's a couple years away from retirement. Adds a lot of value. And he's at that point, he'll tell you whatever the hell he thinks, no matter what, right? (laughs) And particularly when you're a role like me, you need people like that. So he starts off the subject as some advice, right? Caught my attention. (laughs) And he goes on and on about, you know, hoping I take time off because, frankly, he didn't when he was young. And... And he basically was saying that you know, the, people, the only people who can impact the results of our business day-to-day, 
on, on the people that are on the ground serving our clients. The only people who can impact results for the next six months are the frontline partners and directors because they're making the decisions every day about what we pursue and don't pursue. See, the people who can impact are, you know, he goes on to say, the only impact you and your executive leadership team can have on short-term results is to show up and remind everyone that governance is in place. Other than that, and he put this in, in quotes, you can have absolutely no impact on short-term performance. <laughs> no impact, right? So kind of got, he said, now, however, he goes, if you can actually unplug and start thinking about the long-term strategic issues and what we needed to be successful in the next 9 to 24 months, they said that is essential. So I closed my computer. Now, I didn't do it completely, right? I checked in every now and then. Because sometimes, by the way, with three teenagers, it was better to check the emails. But, <laughs> but by and large, it, and, I, and I came back recharged and refreshed. So there's a couple things. I think we have a duty to give back more. There's other parts of our lives that are really important, and you have to put an emphasis on it. But the other part is it actually refreshes and recharges you, which actually, I think, helps you perform better. So it's a combination. Be authentic. Uh, I love this quote from Oprah. Um, and she was pretty successful what she did by being herself, right? You know, as leaders, people spot phonies, right? You have to be comfortable with who you are and how you lead. The person that had this role before me was, was a great CEO. He and I have known each other for 25 years. We've worked together. We're as close as could be in terms of the, the vision of the organization and where we want to go. But we are night and day different people. And our styles are very, very different. If I would tried to take and emulate what he did, I would have failed. I had to create my own space around who I am. And by the way, if he tried to be me, it wouldn't work either. So the point is you have to look at what is comfortable for you, and you have to structure your leadership style around that. Now, for me, um, I try to be very, very transparent. I'm plain spoken. I'm direct. I love nothing more, and I'm hoping there are a lot of good questions out there, nothing more than having good Q&A sessions with our people. I like to listen a lot to our clients. I spend a lot of time with clients. I like to get out in the field making sure that our people know that I still love to consult. I still do what they do. Right? So that nature of who you are, I think, is really a critical point of who you are as a leader. Because if you're not, people can see through it. They want to know, they want to know that they're dealing with somebody that, that's real, right? that's consistent and comfortable with their own skin. So I think this, don't try to be something you're not as you lead. Find your own leadership style. Have a vision. Take a second on this quote. You know, I've worked with a lot of companies, and the, one of the things I think you can fall into, and I felt this more so than ever last year when I took over this role. Look, I was responsible for driving a very aggressive earnings plan. At the end of the year, if we pay our people what we want to pay them, pay our partners and directors, we have to drive that result. So there's this kind of gravitational pull to focus all your time and attention on driving the results. Right? You can get sucked into that. Okay? And what, what happens is that you can get focused on what I call the how and the now. Right? Looking at how we're actually going to drive results today in the moment. And you stop looking forward, looking into the future. The problem with that is your competitors aren't, particularly the ones that aren't positioned as well as you are. Right? They're looking at ways to intentionally disrupt you. They have to be innovative because they're not positioned as well as you are. Right? So you can get seduced into that. The other part is I think our people want, they want a vision. They want to understand where the organization is going. They want to, want to be, be inspired. It's one of the reasons why I stepped back at the beginning and said, look, we have to look longer term. I wanted to look what was happening in the marketplace today in consulting and create a vision for, for five years and even ten years out. Okay, and what I found is actually by doing that, you invest differently. Right? So based upon that, we created a whole new role based strictly on innovation. I believe in the next five years, a lot of what we do is going to morph. And the business models and how we work with our clients is going to change dramatically like 15% of our revenue driven from things that we're not doing today consistently. And you can't do that without an intense focus on innovation. The other things around global, our clients are going global. So we're investing very, very different in how we play globally 
so that we can support our clients. Those are just a couple of examples. I, I firmly believe if I would focused on driving the plan that I would have missed that. Right? So you have to have a vision for where you're going for the organization. Create that picture of where you're headed and not lose sight of that. Be bold. Be bold and decisive. Now, I grew up doing turnarounds, working with a lot of troubled companies, and there were kind of two patterns that I saw. I saw companies that had a bold vision and took it, but it wasn't very smart. Right? So now when I say be bold, it doesn't mean you don't think it through clearly, because you have to. Right? You have to. I'll give you an example. One of our clients had been a very successful privately held company, but got enamored with buying an, an asset so they could be fully vertically integrated. I won't even tell you what the, the company is. I don't want you to go back to it. We actually advised him not to do it. We said, we don't think it's a smart play. And his question was, can I afford it? And so I wasn't a partner at that time. The partner says, well, technically you can afford it, but we still wouldn't do it. But he fell in love with the asset, so he bought it. Now, the problem was he had absolutely no experience in actually running that part of the operation. So when there were problems, he didn't know how to correct it. Versus everything else in his business, he could almost do intuitively. And he had a very unique positioning in the marketplace and was very, very good at what he did. The other part is this asset had huge environmental implications that he hadn't really studied. And so once he got in, he couldn't even get out because he had this environmental anchor. So he ended up going into bankruptcy. Now, we helped him navigate out of, him, out of it, but it took about four to five years, and frankly, he was lucky. Okay, So that's one example. The other one I saw was companies that they got so focused on always studying things that they could never actually make a decision. They call it creeping incrementalism. Right? They study things to death, but they lose the ability to innovate. They stop reinventing themselves. They stop making bold plays. So I think you have to study things so you make sure it's the right decision. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision. We're actually looking at our compensation system right now. We've been talking about it for 15 years. I told the team, this year we're going to study it. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And if we do it, great. If we're not, we're not talking about it as long as I'm in this role again. I think we're going to do it, by the way. So the other thing is, you see this picture right here, Deloitte University. Okay? We, the, the former, chair, former CEO of the overall firm, came to the board. I was on the board right there in the heart of the recession, said, I want to build Deloitte University. I want to build a state-of-the-art facility for us to develop our people. People are our primary asset, right? And the people on the partners on the board, we thought he was nuts. Are you kidding me? Everybody's going virtual. I can go, buy, I can go to facilities all over, the, all over the country, all over the globe. Our people like going to different locations. Why would we do this? So we kind of threw, threw up on it. And he wouldn't let go. I mean, thank goodness he had a vision. It was bold. And we, so, but we studied it for about eight or nine months. And we put enough detail into understanding and helped craft the vision. What we realized was if we did this, one, we had to completely revamp the way we thought about leadership development, completely transform that whole, that whole process. And we had to shape this facility in a way that it not only did, did that around leadership, but it really reinforced and solidified our culture. Now, it's only been open about six to seven months, but early returns are phenomenal. I mean, anybody who's gone there, we've taken clients, people, uh, our people, others there, and it's just they're blown away by it. I think the experience is really transformational. Okay? Now, we'll see over time, but I think, it, I think it's one of those big, bold bets that had we not really studied it, I don't think we would have ended up in the same result, yet it was bold and decisive. Essentially, the partners during the heat of the recession, we each wrote a check for $100,000 to go build this facility. It also sent a very strong signal to our people about how important they were um, to us as a firm. Empower your people. You know, the longer I do this, the more gray hair I have, the more I realize at the end of the day, strategies are great, they're important, you've got to have a vision, you've got to run the operations. At the end of the day, it all comes down to people. No matter what company it is, if you can get your people lined up around where you're headed as an organization, it can be truly powerful. People, they want to have a vision. They want to know where their, where their part in the organization fits in that vision and how that vision helps drive the performance of the organization and what you expect of them. If you can absolutely do that, then I think the performance of the organization is like on rocket fuel. Okay? Now, in our firm, we had 250,000 applications for employment last year. 
Right? So the people we hire are the best of the best. The best of the best. Okay? They don't want to be micromanaged. Okay? They want to be led. They want to be mentored. They want to be counseled. They want to be coached. They want to be put in situations where they're stretched and challenged. They want to grow. And so that's the kind of environment that we try to instill in our firm. And the, and the companies that I work with that are, that are truly, I think, exceptional have figured out how to do this okay, in whatever business they're in. There's lots of examples out there. So I think this is critical. So try to keep it relatively simple. Those are some of the highlights of the things that, that I look for. My message to you is that everybody in this room can be a great leader. Okay? You have to spend time thinking about, and you know, by the way, part of my growing up, I, I watched lots of different leaders. I watched a lot of companies that I work with. I, locked, I, I watched a lot of the partners and directors I grew up under, so I studied, and I, and I took pieces that worked well for me and morphed them to things that, that I thought were kind of consistent with who I, who I was as a person. And I would su suggest the same to you. So spend some time thinking about it, but you can be a great leader as well. One thing about it, you have to be willing to lead. Leadership has risks. I, I, you know, I find you know, in a partnership model, um, it's a different kind of structure, right? And so there's lots of opportunities to lead. It's actually quite interesting in our organization of really, really high performance, performers, how many people are reluctant to step out there and lead. So leadership has risks. Go back to that being bold part. Be willing to step out. Understand you will fail sometimes. Okay? Failure is rarely fatal. Okay? So if you want to lead, step out there. Um, this is a great foundation. I mean, uh, the, the foundation I learned here at Anderson, I think, was transformational for me as a person. And not just the studies, which were first rate. It's all the other things that wrap around what you get as, as, an, as a student here at Anderson. There are lots of opportunities to lead. Take advantage of them. The one thing about this structure, when you lead, it's not hierarchical. Right? It's through everything you do, everything you lead here, even if you're the president of an association or one of the clubs, it's still through influence. And most companies today work that way. So what you'll learn in that kind of leadership role, I think, will be, I think, foundational for you. Well, anyway, thanks for spending the time. I think Judy's going to grill me on a couple of questions now. How did I do on the time? Pretty much right on time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is good. I usually I ramble a lot. That's what they tell me, so. First of all, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, for sharing your insights and the leadership. Thank you. I'd now like to introduce... And I'd like to introduce the Dean of the Anderson School, Ms. Judy Olian. Yes, thank you, Jim, uh, so much. My pleasure. Um, we're, this is an alum for life. We talk about alumni for life. Absolutely. And Jim embodies it. Um, he talked about the fact that you get a lot out of UCLA Anderson. I don't know if he mentioned the fact that Cynthia, his wife, is a product of being here and meeting her. Best acquisition I ever made. <laughs> right here Most strategic Anderson. thing I ever did, too. Yes. But, so there are those kinds of byproducts that you talk about, and, and what an incredible family. Uh, Jim is an inspirational alum of ours. He has been so uh, dedicated to UCLA Anderson. And when I first started, I, I didn't know Jim, and we had some questions about what we were doing in the career placement center in the Parker Career Management Center and also around admissions. And Jim led two incredible uh, pro bono projects on behalf of Anderson. Uh, and all of the roots of the restructuring that we've engaged in over the last five years and all of you and the outcomes that you're benefiting from started really with Jim's project. So we are indebted and um, that will remain in perpetuity, a big legacy of Jim. Well, I enjoyed it. My first time I met Judy was over dinner, right? And we'd send it a report. She wanted to go through it, right? So you never know with clients how they're going to. She got. She had marks on every page. Really, it's like a hundred-page deck, right? She's like, on page fifty-seven, what did you mean by this point? So I knew. Well, you know, we really um, got, got took it, it to heart, and, and it was um, quite incredible. 
Um, I want to, you said you only hire the best and the brightest. Actually, you hired eight Anderson alumni this year and 12 interns, and I know other people have roots. So how many of you are the best and the brightest going to, coming from uh, Deloitte? There Incredible. We go. There we go. Incredible. All right. All right. Uh, Deloitte, Deloitte has been, uh, I think, tied or usually number one, usually sometimes number one or two, but has been an incredible pipeline. And all of the results that are being demonstrated, and we'll talk about that, in Deloitte, we think are attributable to Anderson. Agree. I, I would agree with that. <laughs> So I'm gonna, I have that strong bias too, by the way. Uh, I'm going to start with a few questions of my own. Jim, by the way, you, you get a medal because nobody has ever finished on time, so you did. That leaves us a lot of time for questions here, which I'll turn over to you. And uh, we will end at 12.40 promptly. And many of the questions that I'll ask have come from you or from faculty, so we thank you for that. So, so let's start with the nature of consulting today in the information age. Have the principles of consulting changed? Have the services that you deliver change in this era of information and social media? So I, so I think the fundamental principles are the same. Um, you know, and I like to, we're in the business of helping our clients solve really complex problems. And I, I don't think that's changed. But I think particularly with the emerging technologies, I think the way in which services are delivered, I think the pace of innovation, not only within our business, but within our clients' businesses, has changed dramatically. Um, that's part of why we, you know, we're investing heavily around innovation. And if you look at the acquisitions we've made, we looked at 175 companies this year. We've bought four um, in a country. And uh, the, the, the four are all kind of unique assets that, that are, most of them are around emerging technologies. Uh, and the impacts they have in terms of transforming different companies. And how are, you, how are you preparing with the human competency to deliver those change services? And that's part of, that's part of the, uh, the, the, the focus on Deloitte University is we wanted, um, so the foundation you get here is tremendous, right? There's a lot of experiential learning, lots of different, one, you're exposed to lots of different ideas and curriculum, um, different ways in which that is, that's taught. There's a lot of experiential cases space, we wanted to get to something that was much more that way, simulation, case-based, more real life. The other thing, the kind of our unique positioning is we have a tremendously broad set of services uh, and deep, deep industry combined together. So for our people to understand how these all connect is critical. And so part of what we ask people to become an expert in something, but also open your aperture and understand how they connect. The more senior you get, when you talk to a senior executive in an organization, they're talking about a broad range of issues. And, I, and I've been in one where you know, they're talking about you know, a, a program they started in Africa, a new product they want to launch, a new business they want to launch, and also then they'll go down and they'll start talking about a piece of technology and whether it's the right piece of technology for, for their organization. I mean, it's highly, highly diverse. So I, I think that experiential-based learning and talking about how things connect is key. Now, every organization has its own culture, yeah. has its own roots and values and traditions. But if you had to get up at the 30,000 level, could you say what the main difference is, given your view at the top and across, between more traditional banking or car companies versus the new media companies. How, how do the cultures primarily do Traditional versus the new media? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I still think that the, the new media companies, in fact, they spent a lot of time talking. I mean, the, the way they think about going about business is just different. I mean, they're much more innovative. They're less structured in terms of how they do things. We, we, we did a project for Facebook. Um, actually, you know, pretty interesting work with them. And the first thing they said to our people, we had you know, got one of our colleagues in San Francisco, and he wasn't dressed in a suit. I mean, he just said sport coat, and uh, one of our guys, sport coat, you know, and, but business casual. And, and the first thing the guy said when he walked in is he goes, I don't want you to work like you're dressed. Right? Right? So they didn't want PowerPoint, didn't want, you know, they wanted a lot of iterative learning, a lot of, you know, ideation as they went through things. So I think, and by the way, part of what I've asked these new companies we've got that are really innovative, right, is I want to take it and fuse that to make sure we're infusing that in what we do broadly. So I think it's, a, it's just a left, you know, less structure. Now, but the part about Facebook you have to understand 
is they were part of what they were doing was asking us to say, hey, we're getting to be a big company, we need to grow up. And they had to add some of that infrastructure as they went up, and so they wanted to talk to us about that. Is there also a transparency difference? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, and, I, and it's part of the reason why I spend a lot of time on transparency, right? I think it's important for people to act like owners. I see you see that much more so in these kind of new emerging companies, right? The, the whole idea of, in fact, this one company that we just acquired, you know, they were, you know, they're, they're used to being in the Twitter sphere and all kinds of stuff, right? And, and that's something we're not even comfortable with because, you know, because of confidentiality requirements we have. But there is absolutely that, right? That everything's kind of out there, shared, et cetera, is, is a big difference. What makes a great consultant? What are the skills? What are the analytics that make a great consultant? So, you know, at the heart of it, I think you have to like to be a problem solver. I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of things you wrap around it. And by the way, I'm a big, I, the analytics piece to me is key because that actually teaches you how to solve problems. But, but at the end of the day, you have to be the person that walks into a restaurant and say, I can run this place better. You know, are they branded the right way? Do they have the right strategy? Are they running the operations right? And you kind of have to like that. Um, and I, I try to hide that from my kids, but, but they see it sometimes. And I think that kind of nature in the core of what you do is part of it. And then you have to wrap all the different competencies around it. So let me explore that a little further. Mm-hmm. How should we, as a business school, as a great business school, um, be preparing our students for the consulting industry? Well, I think and better prepared. Yeah, I think well, there is. A, I mean, there is a great analytical foundation here, which I think is key. I mean, that to me is kind of table stakes. Um, I think the other thing that's unique about Anderson that that also ties directly to us the team based learning. Um, and understanding how to operate in that team, the culture that you build as a team, I think is also, for consulting firms, particularly for ours, right, it, it, it is something that, that's how we work. We have a low ego style, collaborative, working with our clients and our te- people, so I think that. The other piece, you know, you're going to come in with some competency. You're going to be good, really good at something. So continue to hone that, but over time, start to round yourself out. So explore the other disciplines. If you haven't ever had exposure to marketing, do some of that. And the last thing is the case-based, you know, the experience. Put yourself in a situation where you have to simulate, um, you know, what what companies are going to. And really spend the time thinking about that uh, as you round out these disciplines would be it. But at the heart, don't lose sight of what you're there to do is to solve complex problems. You talked about the EQ aspects of team-based uh, performance, and what about the client interface? Same thing. Well, for in our, so now each firm, each consulting firm has a very different culture in terms of how they face off with clients. Um, so I'll talk more about ours, but there's others that take very, very different kind of approaches to how they want to interact. For us, um, I, I think that low ego, low arrogance file, you know, perspective is critical. I mean, I, I think if you want to work from the boardroom to the shop floor, you better be able to interact with people. The one thing I would say, learn how to interact with a variety of styles and experiences, and so spend time kind of really understanding that. So that that approach, I think, one, I think you get access to information. You, look, if you're an arrogant sob. Do you think anybody's going to try to give you the information? Do you think they're going to help you? No, they're not. I mean, they want to feel like you're there to help them. At the same point, you have to stay independent and objective. You cannot get seduced into the fact that your client, ultimate client, is not the person you're naturally sitting across the table from. It's the CEO and the chair, you know, the board. Right, and so you can't lose sight of what they're there to ask us to do. What we're working side by side is to give them their best, our best advice in their best interest, which may be something they don't want to hear. So I think that combination is what what you look for, and that you can do that here. There's, you know, as a consultant, you never have direct responsibility for anything, right? Look, I, look, I'm an elected CEO, right? I'm not at all confused by the fact that you know, I'm there to serve my partners. And I like that, right? I know the feeling. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, Now, you talked about the fact that you were looking at new reward systems. And it's always interesting to me how consultants are measured and incentivized and rewarded. And so maybe without getting into compromising territory, how should that work? 
Well, for, for us, I mean, I've, and I've, I think it's got to be tied to what your overall strategy is, right? And so um, for, for us, that's a lot of different things. We expect our people to serve clients with distinction and drive results. We also expect them to contribute to building our practice. We also expect them to contribute to, to building our people. Um, and we also expect, frankly, to help contribute to the community, right? So when we talk about, in fact, we, I just, the call I had this morning was, was we're kicking off the year in process for our partners. And so we were talking about, it was all about, there's a holistic set. You may think it's just about the numbers, but it's not. In fact, this year at year end, the way we're going to make the choices between whether somebody's a one or two number, you know, a five, five degree kind of rating system, one at the top, the difference between one and two and two and three is going to be on this whole idea of issued impact, which means the impact you're having solving a complex problem and the actual impact you had, the result you had with either clients, with our people, or with the community. So. And the client participates in that measurement? Yeah, we, we, we get direct, you know, you do this a little bit differently, but, but we do client service assessments around our engagements and around our relationships, and that's a big part of it. And frankly, to that point, we're going to do more of that going forward. So what's the big change from old to new? Um, part of it is putting the increased emphasis, um, increased emphasis on all dimensions, particularly the last one around the impact with clients, impact with our people, and, and really measuring the results and the output. The other thing with our with our practitioners in particular, we're going to much more of a of a variable based compensation model tied to their contribution, their performance, and the performance of our practice, our consulting practice, and so that people feel like they've got more of a. So if they drive a one performance, that they're going to see that more directly reflected in their compensation. A combination of those two things. Um, in the last two years. Well, I didn't look at just the two years, but the company has morphed dramatically. Deloitte is today a consulting firm in its majority, uh, or the lion's share of the, of the three or four parts. I think today it's 44% of the U.S. revenue is consulting versus 34% two years ago, 32% audit and risk, and I think it's 20% tax and a little bit in financial services. When you think about Deloitte, that was certainly not your father's Deloitte. Mm -hmm. So talk about how it's morphed and why. Well, if, if you go, the transformation really goes back to probably about 2004. Since that point, we've we've tripled in size and doubled our profitability. And a lot of it has, has I think, been the focus we've had on some of the things we're talking about. Um, yeah, you know, the, the the combination, our, our positioning in the marketplace is actually one of the things I want to work on this year. Is is it, it, it's a combination of our approach to working with our clients, which is truly truly unique. You talk to our client. If I go talk to our clients. They're actually, I think, excellent at describing what our secret sauce is. And generally, they start out by saying, look, you know our business intimately, which means we know not only their industry but them. In fact, a lot of our clients will send their new people to us to get kind of oriented to their organization. Right? That's number one. Number two, we have a range of services. That, that we're, it's a value proposition that can go from driving the strategy all the way to implementing. And our, cl our clients today, they like firms that are willing to, and we'll do this more and more, and we'll tie our, our, what we get paid based on the results we drive with a client. So the value proposition works. The breadth of services is unique. It was interesting around the downturn. You know, our value proposition relative to others resonated. And so it's, it's, it's a combination of those things. So even, you know, we've outperformed the market. I don't want this to be a delay commercial, but this is, you know, outperformed the market, and particularly in the downturn, um, you know, we grabbed tremendous share. Um, and so the change in the relative percentages is more to do with the growth of the business in consulting as opposed to the decline in the other part. Yeah, yeah. It, we're and on. we'll take the credit for that too, given Absolutely. your role. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the foundation of what I learned here. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it, it, and to be honest with you, I think there, the, there is a lot of similarities to the culture that's, that's formulated here um, that, that works within our firm, that works with our clients. I'm telling you that if you go sit across the table from a senior executive, um, one, they want an advisor, but they also want somebody who's going to listen to them, that really thinks that they're listening to their perspective and taking the time to understand 
uh, not just be an arrogant SOB and tell them that they're the smartest person on the planet and have it all figured out. Car people are really, really smart, but we don't have to tell everybody about it all the time. So, yeah. Yes, Anderson, to take the credit. <laughs> I'm going to ask a couple more, two, three more questions, and so please think about lining up. There are a couple of microphones here with your questions because um, Jim is leaving us lots of time for Q&A. Um, y- you know, y- you've probably encountered some ethical qu- quagmires in your career. Have you ever had to fire a client? Have there been uh, issues that you really wrestled with from an ethical standpoint? Yeah, you know, uh, so I'll start off by saying it doesn't happen probably as much as you might think, but it happens, right? It's it's out there, and and uh, you know we have very little tolerance uh, for it early in my career. In fact, it was about the time between senior manager and partner I started working. I worked for a couple of clients who I didn't, you know, I didn't really like kind of their their view on the world. One in particular. Um, frankly, was uh, was was his shade of grade was 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 that wide, right? Um, and we were actually in a situation where we were hired by the client, okay? But the company that, that was in trouble and the banker wanted us involved, right? And this guy was intentionally lying to the banker, right? So we were conflicted from a standpoint. I couldn't, for confidentiality reasons, almost like an attorney, so go say this guy's. You know, lying to you. Um, now, I'll, let me just say that it worked out in the end, um, but because um, the bankers weren't idiots either. Um, but but at that point, I realized that one, we we after we finished that phase, we didn't work for them again. They wanted nothing to do with them. And I realized at this point, we have an opportunity to choose our clients. Um, and you know, so I, I I like to say our clients. I, I feel privileged to, to work for our clients, but our clients should be privileged to work with us too. And and I think you need to fire clients. And that's a combination. There's ethical ones, but also ones that aren't good aren't good business partners. And in fact, I I fired one last year. We had a 35 million dollar piece of work lined up, sole source, ready to go do. And um, I went and talked to the CEO, and the CEO was great. Um, but some of the organization that we had to work with wasn't. I said, look, you can run a project any way you want. What you want us to do is not one where we can add the highest value for you as an organization. We don't believe it's headed in the right direction, and we're going to choose not to bid. So you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to. The ethical ones to me are black and white. It's, it's zero, zero tolerance around that. But even with that, firing clients is healthy. Have you ever failed? Yeah, you know, in fact, this conversation we have with uh, Kaylee, close your ears. Um, you, you know, I think I think failures. You learn a lot from failures. Um, you know, and so it, it, the fact, well, I think, with our kids, one of the things, you know, parents today they don't let their kids fail enough. Um, and so I think learning how to pick yourself up, uh, it's tough. I mean, there are macro failures, there are micro failures. You know, it, it can be. Uh, I th- there's only one client project that I did in my career that that I didn't succeed in, and I st- I still remember that today, still absolutely remember it today, where um, you know we didn't staff it the right way. I was juggling three different projects. I didn't have the time and attention, and it wasn't that we it, we just didn't deliver the value we needed, and I still remember that. I will never make that mistake again, and that's why I, whenever I whenever I sell a job. I make sure that we actually have the capability to deliver it and that I have the time or the team has the time and attention or I won't do it. So, yeah, I think failure is part of life. That gets back to taking risks. You have to be willing to take some risks. If you don't take risks, then I don't think you're ever going to you're ever gonna grow. Um, and, and so yeah, I think failure is part of life. So I, I, I hope you won't mind, but I'll bring you back to a situation that was, was I'm sure, challenging, and that was the first time around through this process of election, you did not get the CEO that position. That was number two. <laughs> I came in second. Um, Jim came in second the first time around um, and, and didn't get the job as CEO of, of Deloitte Consulting. How did you deal with that, and what happened? So, so I'm going to start it off by saying, um, first of all, I, I never aspired to be the CEO. So I wasn't, it wasn't one of those things that I kind of grew up, when I, when I grew up, I said, I want to be a CEO. Although I did write a sign one time, you know, that said president and CEO on it when I was about 12. I don't know why. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I never, I, what I like to say is that like, I never defined myself by a role. Right. So there's lots of opportunities to lead. And by the way, the person that was selected was a phenomenal leader. Right. I knew him really, really well. 
Um, and at that point, given where we were in the organization, I thought he was absolutely, as I kind of stepped back in dispassion, I thought he was the right person to lead. Um, and I knew there's lots of things that I needed to go do. And so I became his number two, and we were like this, right? And so I still had a major role. Um, but I, my job was to make sure he was you know, as successful as possible. Um, Kaylee, you probably know this, is right before we went to Ireland, that, that one trip. In fact, it happened right after. And I, but I was never all that, all that wound up about it. Um, but I think the key thing is to learn from it and realize that's going to happen. It, it didn't mean you know, there's only one CEO. Right? There's lots of other ways to contribute. By the way, I'm just as happy serving clients. Now, that was one of the, I, I never was so fixed if, if I didn't get that prize that that was it. If I think if I'd been that, I think it would have been you know a lot yeah. harder. My we we um, we interacted and I and I also know quite a few people around Deloitte. And my sense is, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that had you not had that incredibly gracious, mature, learning attitude in what was it a year, a year yeah. and a quarter. Yeah. It, in between the second round because the person who was the CEO of, of Deloitte Consulting is now the CEO. Um, if you hadn't had that uh, wonderful approach to there's always another opportunity and I can learn during this, my sense is you wouldn't have oh. been elected. You can guarantee that. I've been in Siberia probably. <laughs> we had just opened a practice in uh, Kazakhstan, I think. <laughs> no, no, it's... it's no, it was, you know, but I think that's right. But I think you have to really, you have to have the right motivations around this. In fact, I mean, part, part of one of the challenges I got going through is that I, I was never as clear that I really wanted it, right? So that, that I learned a couple of things. One, you had, because you can't politic in our firm. Um, it, so I had to make it clear that, yes, I was interested if our partners wanted me to do that. The other thing is I learned a lot from this guy. just an incredible partner. He's the, the chairman of the overall board of the firm. And he's, he, he was, uh, so I learned, I, I, you know, I watched him. And I, I had, we hadn't worked together in a long time. So I think you have to, you have to take those setbacks as what they are. They're setbacks and, and not get sideways. I mean, I, we had a lot to do. And uh, I was happy to help, help him be successful. So my last question, and you guys start lining up. Um, and you mentioned Kazakhstan. Uh, there is a lot of global growth in, uh, in Deloitte, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, enormous global growth. Talk about where you see the growth regions, and in particular, what are the specific practices that are growing in various regions of the world? Well, first, I'll start off by saying global is, is critical because it's if you go talk, I, when I talk to our clients, that's what's important to our clients. That's where the growth, if you're a U.S.-based company and you look at the growth in, in the Americas and in, in Asia Pacific, you know, elsewhere, that's where the growth is. So they're going there to, to, to serve their clients as well. Um, and so the, the hot areas for us, part of, we did a global strategy refresh as part of the overall strategy. So we identified about 10 markets, but there's even a subset of that that are really important. China, obviously, we already have a joint venture in China. We've, we've uh, taken that practice to be now from about 200 to 1,000 in the last two years. I was in Beijing two weeks ago, and, and helping to build that practice out is, is key. Um, Brazil and the Americas is huge. Um, yeah, we'll see how those economies play out over time, but long term, I do believe that the Americas will be right. So the growth in Mexico, where we made a huge investment this past year, is eight to nine to nine percent, despite all this the security and safety issues down there. And so those areas are those two two areas in particular are ones we're, we're investing. And I believe the partner in charge in Mexico City is also an Anderson alum. Really? I now I didn't even know that. I'll have to. Uh, wow, I didn't, and I'll I know him quite well. Out. Okay, I'll have to. Uh, that's, 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 I'm sure that's true. Anderson everywhere. Um, so there's a couple. Germany for us, in, relative to the marketplace, Germany uh, is significantly under scale. It was in Munich about six weeks ago, talking to the partners there about what we could do to fuel that growth. It was with the CEO of France yesterday, and France is another one for us. Even though they're a traditional market, we're under scale and need to grow. Uh, Japan, Korea um, are, are two of the other ones that we're really, really at this point focused on. So the, the pockets around, part of it is around the market, part of it is our positioning in the market, but there's eight to ten places that we're going to invest heavily. We're already invested significantly in India and have been for years. Well, thank you. That was um, incredibly enlightening. And now we're going to go to your questions. Yeah. And, and remember to introduce yourself, please. Sure. Um, hi. My, thank you for being here. My oh, name my, is Anna my Pena. Um, and I 
had a quick question uh, about authenticity. You talked about being yourself, and a lot of us are here trying to explore and find out what our leadership style is. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you think your leadership style is and how you discovered that, some of the kind of key things you did to get to that point? Right, and you know, I try to incorporate some of it in, in the talk, but I think it really is experiential to me. I mean, I, and to be honest, in a lot of ways, it, it, if I go back, it actually starts when you're a kid, right? And you have an opportunity to lead in different ways, whether it's on a sports field or be a captain of a team or, or you know, be in an office at a school, whatever it is, start exploring. But I think putting yourself out there and exploring is part of that. Uh, here, I have to admit my leadership ap aperture really changed because there are so many different people that have been in different roles. But I spent a, a lot of time listening and observing and trying things that worked for me that didn't and things that didn't work for me and watching other partners and directors in particular in our firm and other clients, what worked for them and what didn't work for them and tried to adapt it. So that's why I you know, put all the books up there. You, you, I read, absolutely. But I think observing and then trying. But at the end of the day, I think it has to come back to something that's authentic with who you are. If I tried to be something that was, like I go back to the former CEO, I mean, in, you know, in many ways, you know, I, I like joke, he's kind of a rock star, right? And so, I, I, you know, that, I'm, I'm a plain spoke, I'm a direct guy, I'm transparent, I sit down and I tell people, when, when I, Judy actually gave me a little bit of heads up on the questions. When I go out and talk with other people, I don't want to see the questions. I don't want to because I want it to be like it's an owner's conversation, whether you're an analyst in our firm or not. And I feel as I should be able to answer your questions. I, I have more facts than they do, so I should be able to have a conversation. So I think the experiential piece is part of it. So I'm glad to hear you're looking around exploring it. That's the right word. Explore it. Try some things, find what works for you, and, and adapt it over time. Does that make sense? Okay. Thanks. I'm Olga Laventhal, um, analyst here at UCLA, not a student. But I have questions. You, you've mentioned a lot of countries, but nothing Eastern European. Yeah. Are you engaged with Russia? And yes, we are. Are you planning to? And if not, why? Yeah, we, we are, actually. So in our firm, there's one other mature practice in our firm. It's a UK firm. The UK firm is actually taking more of a leadership role in Eastern Europe. I should have, I, I left that off. I should have. Uh, they actually have a big joint venture there. We also have a joint venture. They're leading in Middle East. We actually have part of our practice. It's based in the federal practice. It's doing a lot of work in the emerging countries, too. So, for example, we've done work in Afghanistan and Iraq and Kosovo. We helped build out all the banking and legal infrastructure in Kosovo, part of the reason they were granted kind of the, you know, kind of the, the, the recent kind of statehood um, was from that, right? So, it, it, so we do a lot of work in those emerging companies. Those are just not as ones that the U.S. practice is driving as much. In Russia? Mm -hmm. Uh, evolving. I mean, it's still. I mean, we, you know, we invested there heavily, and then just because of, you hit some of the the challenges and the, the you know, way business is done there, I still think it's a, a, a country that will grow. There's a lot of really smart people there. Um, they still have some um, some issues, I think, politically that have to get sorted out, and just the um, the, the the principles of how you run business there are, are different than here. And so I think you have to be very cautious about where you make your investments. Would you say you're comfortable not working there? Uh, me, me personally? No, I'd be, I'd be comfortable working there. I think you have to be out there. I mean, I'd, I'd have to get trained to do that, obviously, to go there. But, yeah. Thank you. Go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Edward Sheng, and I have a question. You said you mentioned that you only hear about the best of the best people, and I'm wondering how you uh, support the growth of uh, those people, those new employees, and also how you keep those new employees, and uh, especially in the hard time like the recession. Okay, so a couple of things. One, during a downturn in particular. So uh, we spent a lot of time developing our people. I mean, if you think about it in terms of what we do, one of the things I like to talk about in terms of a partnership versus a corporation, to, to grow our firm, you have to grow partners and directors. That's the ultimate constraint. There's no pyramid, right? So, so the faster we can give people experiences and develop them to be partners or directors, the faster we grow. Um, so a big part of that is some of the formal learning programs we have. Um, in which Deloitte University is a big part of it, but a lot of it's on-the-job training. Um, this is very much of an apprenticeship business, and so working with our practitioners on projects, deployments, 
are absolutely strategic. You know, working in things that round out what you need to do to round out your professional skill set is a big part of it. Um, and the other part is just being, you know, having real, again, transparent dialogues with people and try to give good, good, actionable feedback. That, that we don't expect everybody who joins us to stay. I mean, when I joined the firm, I had no idea I'd be here 25 years. I expected to be here a couple years. I'd worked in, in industry for a few years. I worked in, as a summer intern, and I realized, although I had a great experience in, in industry, I, my rate of growth was much faster in the consulting firm. But I don't expect everybody to stay there. So part of it is also, you talk about alum for life. We want, we want our people to be alums for life as well. So even if they go to another company, we want to stay connected to them. And during a downturn, um, you know, the key to us is to make sure we balance supply and demand. And in the last downturn, we actually did a great job of that with the exception of about uh, 200 folks. At the end of the day, we had to, we had to size the business in a way that we, um, that we, you know, we had some people that left that we, we in, in, a, in a different time would have, would have had some. But the reality is, so at that point, you have to think about the greater good. So we, we learned from that. Um, and we actually have done some things now to have a much tighter reign on, on, on hiring. So our real filter is experienced hires. And so if the market softens, we just reduce down the number of experienced hires, the people that we actually bring in. Our campus plan generally stays the same. That, in fact, we're shifting our model over time. It's one of the other things on our talent standpoint we did this year is we're going to shift over time our focus to be much more campus-oriented rather than experienced hire for lots of different reasons. But at the end of the day, we'd rather kind of take talent from places like Anderson and grow them internally. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, just as a follow-up, and one of the ways in which people talk about consulting careers, and I know you've talked about it this way, is it's a great way to get an overview of a whole lot of different industries yep. and then to move. Do, do, do you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, I, look, when I came in, I worked in virtually every industry and and uh, in all kinds of disciplines. I mean, I, I, you know, I ended up gravitating to trouble company work because that's what I really like. We had some really eminent partners in that space. Uh, we were preeminent in that space at that time. And, the, you know, that, by definition, that product, it was strategy, it was finance, it was operational restructuring, it was around talent. In those days, there wasn't a lot of technology involved. And, and so I kind of, I picked up an appreciation for technology later as we, just around large transformations, because so much of what gets done today is technology-based, it's technology-enabled, much more. You get back to the innovative technologies, it's starting to happen now. So you have to have at least an appreciation for that. So, but no, that experience is great. Um, and then, by the way, you find things that you really like and areas that you like that interest you by, by that experimentation. What I did this year was a little bit different. I stepped back for the entire consultancy. We hadn't done that in probably four or five years and said, I want to create a longer-term vision um, that actually went out to 2016 and 2020. We hadn't done that for a while, um, and, and I thought that was actually really, really critical at this juncture given what was happening in, in the marketplace. Um, so, so I think that, that's kind of the sequence around it. What was, I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? Uh, as CEO, who do you go to for feedback and advice? You know, it's kind of like this letter, to be honest with you. you you know, what you find out is the filters get tighter as you get more senior. And so I've got some people that I know. So first of all, the, the executive committee I selected, I've known them a long time. I trust them implicitly, and they're not any one of them afraid to tell me that I'm full of it. Um, I also created a, a senior partner council. It's called the back nine, right, because there's nine of them. And they're all within two years of retirement, and they are all. You know, one, the, their pensions are set. There's nothing I can do to them. I can't fire them. <laughs> so they can tell me whatever the hell they want. And we had, in fact, we had our first session in D.C. about a month ago. And we started at 8, and we went till about 1. And it was a great session. So I think whenever you, it, you always have to, you know, the emperor has no clothes, right? you got to have people like that. Um, we, actually, my team around me, I, you know, I... They have no problem telling me, you know, that wasn't very good. Um, and I think that's critical that you do that. Thank you. Yeah. Other questions? Thank you very much for coming. Emmanuel Alvarez from Mexico. Huh? So as we have seen, you have very clear your priorities as your family, the company. What's the challenges for you to permit that to your employees and 
and to set clear the expectations for them to see that they have to have this work-life balance but also deliver the results. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. I think, I think one of the hardest things um, in, in any large organization is to, to give clear signals to your, to your people around where you're headed. So on the, on the balance point, that's why I went out and made it very, very visible in terms of the fact I was going to do it. When I left, I, my, my, you know, my absentee message on email said it. Um, I will be perfectly honest with you, and Kaylee can attest to this. I, you know, I'm still working out the balance in this new role. I travel a lot, um, so I'm still trying to work that out. But I make it, I, I, I make it a conscious effort to say that it's okay. I think you absolutely, you know, you have to do that. At the same point, you know, the people we hire, um, they're driven, they're motivated, um, and they're, they they want to they want to perform. So, um, what we really need with them is make sure they're pointed in the right direction. And, and that they're, they're clear. So the fact that we, we try to be very clear around what our priorities and, and we've done a couple, a couple other things we've done in our, in our compensation system I didn't get to with Judy, but one of the things, investment and, and innovation is huge for us. So, so we're actually changing the way, part of the subparts of what we do around, around our evaluations where people get credit, if, if, whether it's chargeable, whether they're on a sanctum, you know, kind of a sanctioned firm investment project, it counts the exact same in terms of how they, you know, it's a contribution. The key thing is what impact did you have? But I think the key thing is get out there, be visible, lead by example, and make people understand that it's clear, and then reinforce it when you have a chance, right? When somebody has a, when anybody has a choice between a meeting that I called or something with their family, I said, absolutely, you should go. I got you covered. We have a woman, senior partner I've known forever. She got remarried, kind of a sad situation. Both her, she, she, her husband died, passed away, or the, the, her new husband's um, uh, you know, wife passed away. They married, they had three kids. It's kind of the Brady Bunch, right? Except the Brady Bunch was a fiction. And, and one, one, of the, one of the children is having a real tough time with uh, the, the loss of her mother. And so she's a very senior partner, very, very critical client. And she called up, I need to take time off. He said, done. You know, call us when you're ready, right? We, we'll cover you. you. You know, those are important things. Those are no-brainers, right, that you have to signal. So people watch your actions. That makes sense? Answer again. Um, did you have a follow-up? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So I have a follow-up. Okay. And that is, you know, Deloitte is... Without making an ad for Deloitte, Deloitte is listed as a very unique environment to work, 13 times on the top 100 places to work in Fortune, umpteen other awards. What are the ingredients that make it such a great place to work? And I think some of those are related to family issues. But Well, I, and it, to me, it comes back again to the values. I mean, I think you, you know, you, you, you really, it's, it's what does an organization stand for, right? What do, you, what do you foundationally believe in as an organization? And that, 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 that investment in the character of the company and the, and the culture of the company is something that we all believe in. And we, we interview a lot of partners and directors from other firms because the environment is so, such turmoil today. And the thing, I, I'm the last interview, right? And so the thing they always say, it's, they're amazed at how consistent the message is about what's important in our firm. Every, every acquisition we make, we spend as much time looking at cultural fit as we do is it strategic. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. And so I think it's that emphasis on, on that, Judy, that it's, it's around the values. It's what you believe in. But tick off a few of the examples. Um, you know, the, the, the client service and client excellence and having impact with our clients is, is foundational to what we do. That's why we joined. So there's a 1A and 1B. That's number one, meaning that's why I still spend time with clients. I, you know, I'm going to work. I work on project. One, it's a little different right now, but right before I was CEO, I spent 45, 45% of my time actively working significant engagements with clients. So modeling that. Number two is people. You know, it, it, you know taking care of our people in our firm. You know, the way you succeed is by helping other people be successful, and that is primacy, our partnership, the importance of a partnership, what that partnership model is, and what that means to be an owner, right? And so even our analysts, our youngest folks in our firm, that they have a duty to, a duty to the firm in terms of contributing and helping to lead, 
Um, the, the other one is around leadership in everything we do, whether it's in morals and in integrity and in, you know, how we operate, that whole concept of leadership. And the last is that it's more than just about the firm. It's about the community, that I believe we have a duty and a responsibility Given, and we're privileged, we're blessed, we, you know, we're educated, we're compensated while we work hard. We have a duty, I believe, to be more than just about the company. And we need to give back, whether it's to our, you know, our schools that we went to or our communities in some way. Whatever you're passionate about, those are some of the, those are some of the highlights. Hey, I'll, I'll give you a couple of specifics. Maternity and paternity leave, oh, yeah. sabbaticals, as a... As a a person, it could be a, f a male or female, you can take, I think, up to five years off and come back and kind of ramp up and ramp down and come back into the firm, which again creates such uh, loyalty and a sense of balance, exactly, as, yeah. as you talked about. Uh, maybe one last question, uh, which I'll ask, and that is you've talked about the strategy for uh, 2016, 2020. Obviously, Deloitte University is a key part of it. How, how are you seeing the strategy? So if I look at, if I kind of summarize, you know, what the vision of what will be like in, in 2016 or even 2020 is we're going to, we're big today, we're going to be even bigger and we're going to be bigger, not just to be big because um, it, it's not about being the biggest, it's about being the best. Although you look today, scale is more important than it ever was and there's a high degree of correlation between size and, and strength. Uh, we'll be truly global. We'll be seamlessly global. And we'll, that means we'll have consistent capability and the ability to staff globally in ways we, we don't today. Um, innovation will now be um, part of what we do built into the fabric, and 10 to 15% of our revenue year over year will come from new and adjacent businesses. That means new business models, new approaches with our, with our clients. Our alumni program, right, the concept of leaders for life and, and, and colleagues for life will be in full force. And we'll have 10,000 alums in senior executive positions uh, across uh, the Fortune 1000. Um, and, and all that said, right, it will be, you know, kind of brought back against the exact same values that we have today. Those won't, won't change. But those are, those are some of the highlights of the vision as I see us going forward. Well, Jim, thank you so much. You make us uh, very proud and inspire us as an inspirational My, my pleasure to be here. Thank you, thank you Julia. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.